you can uh, grab a seat. And if you got your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 16 this morning. John 16. We're actually going to have two readings, but we'll start there. And we've been looking at this series we've called Journey of the Soul, kind of piggybacking off that uh, book some of you have been reading. Um, and, and, and what we've tried to do as we reconnect back together as a church, this kind of social undistancing, maybe spiritual undistancing, I would call it, is uh, just help us to understand kind of from a big picture view what the spiritual journey looks like. And we've piggybacked, we started the series looking at the 23rd Psalm, and they really, the 23rd Psalm kind of maps this journey out if you read it. Uh, That way it starts, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And it's that first step of actually accepting the leadership of Jesus, committing your life to Christ, and then it moves on, you know, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he refreshes my, restores my soul. That's that kind of second stage where you've committed to follow Christ and you start to learn, you start to grow, uh, the community comes around you, uh, and and you're beginning to, to grow in your discipleship. Then it moves on. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. There's that step where you, you've come to Christ, you know some things, and then you begin to serve. You start plugging in, you look for the mission that God has for you. Whether it's inside these four walls or at your job, wherever it might be, you begin to develop some responsibilities in ministry. And then, as much as we'd, we'd love to avoid it, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they come for me. This, that's, we talked a couple weeks ago about hitting the wall. There comes this place in our spiritual journey where it feels like, how long, Lord, where are you, God? Where have you gone to? And a lot of times we think God has checked out or we're making mistakes, but actually that's a part of the journey. It's, it's right there along the way. And what happens, as Jake did so well last week, he, after that wall, what it forces us to do is to reflect on our own lives, to take this inward journey where it's not so much about what we do for God, but it's about who we are in front of God and who God is to us. There's this deeper uh, depth of spiritual relationship, an honest assessment of who we are and what we're depending on. Jake used that story last week of Jairus' daughter, Jairus' situation, and the woman bleeding to, to show that you know we are needy. We don't have what we need, but God still welcomes us to himself. And today, you anoint my head with oil, My cup overflows. This idea of that as we go on the inward journey, that it's the Spirit of God that works with us, this anointing, this this Spirit that has been given to us that leads us. Now, the work of the Spirit is something, you know, we talk about it a lot. We don't necessarily think about it a lot. Some denominations will spend all their time on the work of the Spirit, and some are a little scared of that guy, and they don't really want him to come around, so we avoid it. But but what we want to do is, is reflect today on what is the role of the Holy Spirit? What does he do in our lives? Why is it so important on this inner journey that he leads us and that he guides us? We're going to look at at a couple of sections from what the scholars call the upper room discourse. This is Jesus in the upper room teaching his disciples before he's betrayed and goes to be tried and eventually crucified. And it, it really is his last verbal teaching before his death. Remember we talked a few months ago about Peter's last words, the last book that Peter wrote. Well, this is, in a sense, Jesus' last words, and we're going to read Two sections of it. I'm going to ask Cedric if he will come up and read verse, chapter 16, verse 5 to 15. Verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? 
But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to help you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thanks, Cedric. This is kind of a, a key passage where Jesus outlines this coming of the Comforter or the Spirit and what it means. But as in any section of Scripture, you've got to realize that the context of the text for the disciples, right? Every story has a backstory. And while this, sometimes we read through this and we think of, you know, this is just Jesus teaching certain things. He's saying certain things to people. He's, he's teaching the disciples. You've got to realize uh, just as whatever happened for you this morning or this week comes with you as you come in here this morning, what the disciples were going through comes with them, Right? And, and, and they're coming to this text at a very difficult place. Jesus is starting to say some things that are shocking them and that they don't understand. In the words we've been using over the past couple weeks, at this moment in the lives of the 12 disciples, they're hitting a wall, right? They've committed their lives to following the Messiah, this Jesus, who they believe is the Messiah. And now, at Passover, when they think all the stuff's going to happen... He starts talking about he's leaving them, right? And he starts, they realize it's tense. They realize his life is in danger, but, but he doesn't seem to be exuding this confidence that he's going to make it through the weekend. And then he starts talking to them about these things. You look at verse 5 and 6, of chapter 16. Let me get these glasses on so I can read it properly. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asked me where you're going. Do you get that? Nobody really wants to talk about this situation. Rather, he says, you are filled with grief because I've said these things. Why don't you want to talk about them? Why are you so upset? Because, Jesus, it doesn't make sense. He started saying these things they don't want to hear. And now it looks like he's going somewhere. Have you ever had that sinking feeling in your stomach when you've invested in something, whether it's time or money or emotion or relationship, and all of a sudden you just have that niggling that maybe it's not going to end up like you hoped it would end up? That's where they are. 
and, and, and his words are not helping them. When we face suffering or struggle or loss of all our hopes and dreams, that's how we feel. Oh, it's not going to come to be what I wanted it to be. And then he says something really strange in verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's speaking of what I call the counterintuitive gift. Right? It's better for you, he says, that I'm not here, that I go away. And if I was a disciple, I'd say, how is it better, Jesus? How does that make it better? Right? You're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the one we're following. You're the one we've banked on. You're the one we've invested our lives in over the last three years. And now you're going away. How is it better? This is not the path that we want to go down. But as is the case with most things on the spiritual journey, it's counterintuitive. The things that we think should happen often don't. And that's what's going on here. See, we have a a way of defining what good is and what success looks like, and Jesus has a way of taking those and turning them on their head. And that's where they are. They're they're coming to the wall, and he's saying things about this gift that he's given them that they really don't understand, and he goes on to explain why it is better, what the Spirit will do for the disciples. I'm sure they weren't too sure about it being better, right? How could it be better? His presence was the key for them to what they thought God was doing. So how could his leaving make this whole thing move forward in any positive way? But he says the Spirit's going to do some things for you, this gift that I'm giving you after I go away. Number one, it's going to expose their sin and their brokenness. There's there's a thread of three things that he, he writes about there. Um, when he comes, this is verse 8, he will prove, he will, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Three things. He'll, he'll convict them of sin because people don't believe in me. He'll convict them about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now, he says, first thing that the Spirit's going to do is, is, is show reveal sin in your life, in the lives of the people around you in, in regards to belief. Because you don't believe. You don't, you don't really... And if you realize that, like we always say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but when, when it push comes to shove, have you ever realized, you know, I, I'm not sure I believe. At this moment, I don't know that I want to commit to this. I, it's easy to say it when everything's good. And he says, the Spirit's going to be the one that's going to say to you, wait a second, you're not trusting, you're not believing here. And in regards to righteousness, he says... Because I'm going to go away. And Jesus, what he's saying is, I'm the one that has embodied this way of life, a righteous life, what it looks like. I'm not going to be here, but the Spirit is going to come to help remind you what that looks like. And in regards to judgment, because I want you to know down in your very core that good is going to win and evil will be defeated. The Spirit's going to expose sin and and lead you in a better path. He'll help keep you clear on what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. And when you hit the wall, like you're going to, Jesus is thinking, I think in a few days you're going to hit a big wall. And it's the Spirit that's going to hold on to you during that time. As this happens, the Holy Spirit living in them will expand their capacity to know both God and the truth. It's it's really important to look at what he says in verse 12 and 13. I have much more to say to you. There's more that you need to know, he says, but he says, it's more than you can bear. You can't handle it. Everything you need to know at this moment, you in and of yourself cannot handle that. And it's, that word bear is the same word when he says, 
if a man would follow me, he must take up his cross and carry it. Right? Jesus is saying, there's more to what's going on in your life than you can hold right now. And, and, and when the Spirit comes, that's what's going to expand your capacity to know the truth and to know me. When the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will lead you there over a period of time. It's not like you're going to instantly know everything you need to know, but he's going to teach you as time goes on. He's going to expand your actual capacity to know and understand and live in a relationship with God. He says he will not speak on his own, but what he hears, he will tell you, and will tell you what he he speak what he hears, and he'll tell you what is yet to come. See, the idea is that apart from the Spirit of God, we can't even really grasp what it is that God wants for us. We're limited. We're, we're broken human beings. And that's why he says, I've got lots to tell you guys, but I can't tell you unless the Spirit is in you to lead you into this. It takes time. It takes communication. And then the Spirit begins to serve as, as a relational connection to God. Now, this is, these, these next two weeks, as we talk about the journey of the soul, are a little harder to understand because they're not so, I mean, it's kind of easy to say commitment to Christ. Here's a day. This is when you said, yes, okay, I'm learning things. I'm, I'm doing responsibilities in ministry. And the wall, we can all identify with that. But this idea of, of, of a relational connection, we, we talk about it, but it's very hard to put into words. The Spirit becomes this conduit, this connection by which we are actually connected to God. It says he will take what he hears from the Father and he'll tell it to you. There's there's a, a connection there. And then he goes on, he will take what belongs to the Father and has been given to the Son and he'll pass that on to you. See, the Spirit is this doorway whereby we can connect in relationship, connect relationally with the whole trinity, the Father, the Son, and obviously the Spirit. Jesus has been there, this physical representation with them. They've been able to talk to him, have a relationship with him, but he's saying we're going to move it to the next stage. I often look at the Bible as, as you know, most of the Old Testament, we see God is out there. He creates the world. He's out there, and he talks to people. Occasionally he shows up and, and, and gives messages to the prophets, but he's God out there. And then in the New Testament, you move into the incarnation, right? Emmanuel means what? God with us. So he's going from out there to with us. But here, when the Spirit comes on Pentecost, it moves to God in us. It's a whole different way of of existing, a whole different way of, of understanding the world. See, they've been able to see and learn who God is through Jesus, but now he's going to be in them through the Spirit. It's a whole different level. And that's why he says, it's better for you if I go away. And, and, and it's something that we hinted at back in, in 2 Peter, that the, what the Spirit does is actually enable, now get this, this is a hard concept, and I don't, it's not something I can really explain. Enable participation in the communion of the Trinity. Now, like I say, this is not easy to grasp because it's a lot more experiential than it is propositional. Like sentence, I can't really explain it. But it's, it's something that we see in Scripture. We saw that back in Second Peter, that, that through our knowledge of God, through his great and precious promises, we've been able to participate in the divine nature. Somehow we can, can join into that. Next week we're going to look at John 17, 20 and 21, where Jesus prays, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is going to be talking in the text next week about how he and the Father are one, and somehow we're going to be in that too. It's hard to grasp. But just before this, in John 14, 17, he said, you know, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you and will be with you. Somehow God moves inside of us, and we are connected relationally with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in this communion that they have among themselves. And we don't think in these terms. <laughs> we don't think of relationships this way. But there are hints in our lives to, to the fact that there's more to our connection than just our talking, right? How many of you have read those stories or seen documentaries about twins and how they, they have this, seem to have this almost a sixth sense sometimes with each other, right? Or, or a parent and a child, right? When your child suffers and you really, you feel it. I actually read a, a study um, just a couple weeks ago about this. They're, they're doing this neuroscience stuff, working on the brain. It fascinates me. But they have these fMRI machines. It's, it's, not, it's like an MRI machine, but it works specifically on the, imp- the electricity in your brain. And so what they'll do is they'll put somebody in this fMRI machine and they'll map what lights of their brain light up when certain things happen. And this experiment I was reading, they had a guy in one room, and, and they would, every now and then, they would just give him a little pinprick in his leg or his hand or something, and they would watch what parts of his brain lit up. Now, the fascinating thing they did was they had a guy in another room in the same kind of machine. And, and if they could establish any kind of connection between the two, they didn't know each other, they hadn't seen each other, but say the first guy was a Canucks fan, Right? There's a few of those. There was a Canucks fan. And the second guy they found out was a Canucks fan. Then they would say to the second guy, hey, in this room over there, in the other, there's another guy in this machine, and he's a Canucks fan like you are. And when you hear the bell, what we're doing to him is we're giving him a little pinprick for him to feel pain, just to map where it happens in his brain. And so they had this guy feeling pain in one room, and this guy nothing in the other room except hearing the bell when it happened, and his brain would light up in the same places as the person who was actually feeling the pain. Just that little bit of connection, you're a Canucks fan, he, he somehow felt in his brain the same way that guy did. There, there is more to what connects us as human beings than what we think, than our physical presence. We are, we are made, and I, I think, and you're going to hear more about this in coming weeks, that what it means to be made in the image of God is we have a capacity for this deeper connection with God and with each other than, than the animals do. We're, we're, that, the Trinity was made for connection. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. And same thing happens with us, that we are made in that image. You know, I, I showed you when we went through 1 John, that icon that they used to teach about the Trinity, the Rublev icon. And, and how you know, they would teach in the early church, this is a, a, a visual illustration of the Trinity. If you look at it, I mean, you're thinking, well, it's not. It's three people. It's not the Trinity. But if their faces are the same. There was lots of teaching points that they took off of this. But the beautiful thing that I love about this icon is there's a space for me to come sit there. And that's, that's what I think is, is, is happening here. He's saying when the Spirit comes, you can actually move right in and have a relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. And not just a relationship like I know about you, but that we're actually connected. That I can draw life from you, as, as life flows from the Father to the Son to the Spirit and back around, and as, as glory flows between them, we can be a part of that. That's what we're called to eternally. Now, 
the Spirit makes that possible. And you say, Jeff, this is a little out there for me. You may think it's a little out there, it's a little different. Well, I, what I want to do <laughs> is give you an introduction, and we'll talk more next week, as to how this looks. And I want to do it by reading the passage in the chapter before, in John chapter 15, 1 to 8. See, it's all fine and dandy to throw out this phrase, participation in the communion of the Trinity. But what does it mean? What does it look like? It sounds way too ethereal and spiritual. I need some concrete images to help me figure out what that actually means. How do I relate to God that way? And Jesus gives this really simple metaphor of the vine and the branches in John 15. Let's let me read the first eight verses. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, when we read this, we often get wrapped up, and I think for good reason, in that you know, pruning and cleansing and birth throwing away and throwing the fire. I don't want to be that, that branch. But, but I want you to, to realize, when he talks about pruning, and he says to them, you are already clean, our translations do us a real disservice because that prune and clean is the exact same Greek word. He says, you guys are already pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. I've already brought you into relationship with me. You are a branch, right? And the key to bearing fruit, then, is this drumbeat that goes throughout the whole passage. I love to... Um, to take a passage, do you guys know what a word cloud is? You can go on the internet to this place to generate a word cloud. You can put some text in there, and what it will do is give you a visual representation of the words in that text, and the bigger they are, the more often they occur. The smaller they are, the less often they occur. And I do it often in my sermons because I want to see what, if, if it gives me a clue as to the theme. So I put John 15, 1 to 8 in a word cloud, and this is what showed up. What's the biggest word? Remain. Remain. It's in there eight times just in verses four to seven. Remain, remain, remain. The Greek word there is meno, and no, it's not Mennonite. I know some of you Mennonites think, yeah, we've got a good Bible. No, that's not where it came from. Mennonites comes from Menno Simons, and Menno wasn't named from the Greek word Menno. But that's okay. If you want to think that, you can do whatever you want. But the word meno, is, is, it has lots of meanings and, and ideas in the scripture. But it, it, it conveys this idea of to live in, or to stay, or to wait, or to abide. All those things. To live in, to stay, to wait, to abide. To live in, like you live in a house. To kind of move inside and take up residence and stay there. You think about, you know, have you ever visited a friend's house and you like hanging out with your friend, but you're just not as comfortable in your friend's house as you are in your house. right? Because you live in your house. You know it. And that's that idea of remaining, to live in God. To stay, this idea of permanence, that it's a long-term thing. It's not like you're just going to float in and out. To stay. You ever had one of those moments when, when everything just 
felt right, seemed perfect, and you just wish you could stay in that moment. Sometimes, you know, it's when you're playing with your kids or you're sitting on the side of a mountain or, or for me, it's, it's a good barbecue sandwich. <laughs> so, you know, you just think this is, uh, okay, to stay, and you just want to stay in that moment. That's that word remain, to just stay in it or to wait. That's another aspect of, of minnow, the Greek word. You know, you hit the wall and sometimes you just have to wait on God to show up. You wait, you wait, you say, how long? But minnow, remaining, is that staying there. And to abide is the same kind of idea, to remain. We get that word abode, our house from it, right? This is the picture of what remaining is. And when you look at his metaphor of the vine and the branch, and the branch needs to remain in the vine, and it'll bear fruit. There's another thing that happens there. Remaining leads to resemblance. If you watch vines grow, I mean, Jesus is most likely referring to a grapevine. But if you watch vines grow over time, uh, if they're not trimmed back, the, the branches just kind of get absorbed into the vine. Have you ever noticed that? Like you, you have this little vine, but over time it, it gets bigger and bigger, and the branches come to look like the vine. They get bigger and stronger, and they're moving things out. The vine uh, grows along the fence as we walk to our house, and it will take over. In fact, as I was walking down my sidewalk the other day, a branch hit me right in the face because it's just coming right down there. And I, in typical caveman fashion, I grabbed my teeth and bit it and broke it right off and spit it out. But, but it will keep growing. But as I go, when I go back and cut that vine back and I get to the, it's hard for me to figure out where the branches connect into the vine because the vine has kept growing, Right? And sometimes I want you to, to, to think when, when we remain in the vine, we become to look like the vine. We're still getting the, the things from the vine flowing through us, but we resemble it more and more. We've seen that before in Scripture, right? 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory as we are remaining, as we're looking, as we're seeing who he is, we are being transformed into his image. As we remain... In Jesus, as we remain connected to the vine, as we're, we're focused on him, as we're drawing from him, as we're living in this relationship with the Trinity, all of a sudden we become to look more like that. With, we're transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. There it is. If it sounds hard to pin, pin down, it is. It's not an easy concept to grasp because we live in relationships as very tangible you and me, and our culture is very individual. But the Trinity is God in a relationship. And, and the reality is, as believers, we are one body in Christ. That's not just a metaphor. That's not just a good way to explain what happens. He actually says we belong to each other, that we're connected. There's this capacity for oneness because of the Spirit that is different than people who don't have that. And like I say, it's more experiential than it is explainable. How many of you remember when you first started to ride a bike? Raise your hand if you could ride a bike. Remember that? First started to ride a bike, and it was extremely complicated when you first started. There's this thing, and the pedals go round, and there's brakes on it, maybe at the foot brakes, whatever, and, and then, you know, somebody sets you on it, some adult puts you on it, and they're holding you up, and you can feel yourself going like this, and it's just, it, it's complicated. And they say, balance. Just get your balance. I'm like, yeah, right. 
How's that supposed to, I remember as a kid thinking, how's that supposed to happen? I can't just, mm, okay, I'm balanced. You can't do it. But then, after I tried it a few times and failed and wiped out and whatever, all of a sudden something clicks. Remember that? And, and now, when you get on a bike, you don't even think about it anymore, do it. The bike actually becomes an extension of you. You just kind of hop on and go without giving it a second thought. And, and, and that's kind of, I think, what's happening with the Spirit. When we first come to think, how do I live in a relationship with God like that? It's, it's complicated. We can't figure it out. But as time goes on, as we, as we remain in Him, as we continue to gaze at Him, as we continue to trust and li- open our hearts and, and live in a life of prayer with Him, it becomes more of a oneness. And we move together. That's what he's calling us to. And that's, that's where the spiritual journey, that's why we have to go on the inward journey because the things that are hindering that oneness that we can hide when we're at the outer journeys, like the, the doing and the learning and all that stuff, we can do all that without being deeply changed. But once you hit the wall and go into this inner journey, those things start getting exposed because that's what hinders this oneness with God. That bike riding image, I hope, gives you a little understanding of what it means to live remaining in the Trinity by the Spirit. That's what we're called to do, remaining in the Trinity by the Spirit. The Scripture says in Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's, let's keep moving in a direction. It's not like we go to the Spirit and we, we fill up our tank and then we go do our thing. Let's, let's keep moving with the Spirit, Right? There's some things to remember that God can help us, that can help us as we learn to remain that way. Some basic truths, I think, that can anchor us. And, and I'll, I'll leave you with just a few of those. And like I say, I, I know this is a thinker sermon, um, but I, I would encourage you to th- think about it, but also just say to God, you know, you have this thing in you, if you're a believer, called the Spirit. <laughs> and you can say, God, I don't get this, but I'd like to. Help me. Help me learn. Help me begin to embody this relationship that I have because of the Spirit. But here's a few things that can help you as you, as you go. First, I want you to, to realize that it's foundation. Truth, you have to see truth as relational and not propositional. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm going I'm to talk about this a bit more next Sunday, and then there's two weeks in December that I'm really going to talk about what it means to know God. But we, we've kind of adopted this Western mindset, thanks to Plato and Aristotle and Descartes and all these great philosophers, that truth is this thing, this information that we can write down, that we can possess, that we can learn, right? People go to, to school, and what do they do? They take the truth from the teacher, they write it in their book. Now I know the truth. And, and while there are aspects of truth that we can write down, I want you to realize that the heart of truth, what did Jesus say? I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. Truth is not just statements. It's not a doctrinal statement. It's a relational reality. We think of truth as, or knowledge as bits of information that we possess, that we gain. We go to school, we learn it. We read a book, we learn it. We've gained this information. Truth is something that we have. And yet, what I'm saying is, truth in the way we see it in the scripture is it's something that has us. It's a relational thing. I think our, our world is suffering from a tendency to try to see truth as just words and information. How many of you wondered what it was like to be in love years ago, before you fell in love? And you wondered, 
And you might say, what's it like? And people would try to explain it, but they can never really explain it. But then once, you, once it happened, you knew. Do you see that? that? That's a truth that is a relational idea, not a sentence. How many of you learned what friendship really was? By having a friend, right? And you, you can't explain why this person is your best friend, but you just know it and they know it. It's a relational idea. I still remember hearing my dad talk about having children, what it was like. And he'd always say, son, you'll, you'll never really, you'll never understand it. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's a kid. Okay, yeah, I want a kid. There we go. But I remember holding Becca, who's right up there. She's not as small as she used to be, right? She's 20-something now. All my kids, 20-something, right? All my kids. That moment, I knew what my dad was talking about, even though I couldn't express it, Right? Truth is not just a proposition, a statement. Truth is relational. How many would say that there are, are times in your relationship with God that you just cannot explain? You'd like to put words to them, but you can't. That, that's a deeper sense. Now, it doesn't mean we don't need proposition. It doesn't mean we don't have doctrine, but it just says that's only one aspect. And, and I think what God calls us to on this journey is to live in a relationship of truth with the truth, with him, Jesus, who is the truth. See, Jesus, I, I come back to this verse all the time. In John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that in those sentences you get eternal life. But then he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, but you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, he's not saying don't study your scripture. He's just saying that that is a vehicle to bring you into relationship. If you were riding that bike and, you, and all you did was focus on the pedals the whole time, you're going to die, <laughs> right? The pedals are a means to an end. The balance is a means to an end. You want to go somewhere, right? When you first started reading and you looked at words, I could, I still remember when words started actually coming together, right? You used to see like C-A-T, and all of a sudden you saw cat. But the point wasn't that you could read the word cat. The point was that you could look past that word to realize it's talking about a cat, right? And, and that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying this propositional truth that we have is yours, but it's, it's trying to drive you beyond that so that you can actually live in a relationship with me through the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides us on this journey because this is God in us, teaching us the truth about who God is in words but also in relationship. And, and the call for that is for us to remain. If we're going to live in that relational truth, we have to remain, and remaining requires openness. Here's the point I'm trying to make. If, if you're drawing life from God, if the Trinity is swirling life around and you're moving into that and you're drawing life from God and you're learning who he is, not only propositionally, but relationally, it's an ongoing process. You do not arrive at a point where you have everything you need. You do not arrive at a point where you know everything you need to know. You have to main, remain open to that relationship all the time. We have to maintain a posture of openness to where God is leading. Here's a great example. It's a guy in the Bible you may have heard of. His name was Job. Everybody hear of Job? Everything falls apart for Job. 
Everything goes bad, every single thing. And then he has three friends that come, and, and they sit for seven days in silence, and then they do this, this rotation of conversations where they tell him why everything has gone wrong. They give him all these answers. And then Job complains a bit too, and another friend shows up. But then at chapter 38, it says the Lord speaks. And in chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, God speaks. And he says, hey, Job, where were you when this happened? Job this, Job that. And what, what, realize, what happens at the end, Job finally says, my, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I had ideas about you, and my friends had ideas about you. I had heard about those things, but now I've actually seen who you are. And in the Jeff Kuhn version of the Bible, Job just says, I'm going to shut up and listen for a while. I'm going to live in a relationship with you and let you teach me who you are instead of thinking that I've arrived. And I, this, this is one thing in the church where I, I think we, we misunderstand being true to the faith and true to our convictions. And, and, and we think we, we, we've got to hold fast to the truth, which we do. But we also have to have the humility to realize that there are things that we don't know. And we need to be open and be led by the Spirit wherever he is going to lead us. In, in Mark 8, Jesus is talking to the disciples. And, and uh, he's talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they realize, they're, they're thinking, oh my goodness, it's because we didn't bring any bread on the boat. <laughs> That's why he's talking about that. He's not making that point at all. But once again, they're thinking very tangible. And he's talking much more ethereal. And he says, aware, in Mark 8, he says, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? You see, as to remain, if we're going to remain, it requires an openness. It means that sometimes we are wrong about what we thought about God and the world. And we have to be open to let the Spirit lead us into what that truth is. And because of that, our pathways can and will be surprising. In, in chapter 16, 5 and 6, we saw their grief, and they wonder how Jesus leaving can be better for them. The Spirit places us in positions that we don't expect, places that we're surprised to be at, things that we could not have planned for. That's a part of the journey. That's one of the ways that he keeps us open and remaining. Matthew 4, 1. Remember that? Jesus had just heard, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. And then it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if, if the Spirit would lead Jesus into the desert for this process, this testing, we have to realize that our pathways may not be what we thought. And stop jumping to conclusions and saying, this isn't what I expected. I must have done something wrong. Remain open to what the Spirit is doing in that moment. Okay, what are you doing? God, why are you leading me here? Why are we doing this? It could be that God wants to say to you, this thing that's happening to you is better for you than what you wanted. Just like he's saying to the disciples, it's better for you if I go away. You see, sometimes we have to realize that the type of knowing that God wants us to experience with him is a deep relational communion. And when knowledge is only information, when knowledge is something we control, it becomes something that we possess. 
And our relationship with God becomes based on what we have and what we know. But possessing is the opposite of remaining. Right? Remaining says, okay, here I am. Whatever you got, I'll take it. Whatever I don't need, I'll let go. Possessing is, is closed and we're in control, but remaining is open-ended and it's God who's driving the next step. That's, that's what he's saying to the disciples. Guys, you are not even going to fathom what happens in the next week. It's going to blow you away. But it's got to happen. It's better for you. Because I'll go and the Spirit will come and then we can move to a whole different level of relationship. And what's being offered on this journey inward is the invitation to let go of our t- attempt to control and possess God and to open our hands and remain open to whatever he would do. When this happens, our life comes from a very different place. When we encounter trouble or difficulty or when we don't understand something or when we fail, (laughs) if our life with God is less about what we can do and more about being with him, it provides a freedom and a safety because he is with us and he will lead us and he will guide us. If we, by the Spirit, learn to grow into a relationship with the Trinity, then we can hold on to that relationship even when everything else has fallen apart. You know, all these stages we've talked about, this commitment to Christ, this growing in discipleship, finding your role in ministry, and then hitting the wall, being driven inward, they're all an invitation to life with God, a life that flows through the Trinity and through us and out out of us into the world. And and that life, if we can remain with it, changes us to look like God, Jesus. That's that's the goal of the journey of the soul. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. God, this is is more than we can explain, or definitely more than I can explain. But um, can I just ask that you would teach us what it means to remain in you? That you would... Help us to to learn and to know and to to have information about you, yes. To know the truth of Scripture, yes, and to hold tightly to it. But help us to also be able to look through that, through the mechanics of that, to actually living in a relationship with you, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to open ourselves to to draw the life that you give and to live empowered by you as we go throughout our day. We, we want to, to know that. We want to experience that. We want to grow in that. We thank you for the spirit that you've given to us that helps us do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We, um, I've got a theory. Um, the theory is that we live in a world that is sitcom-oriented. It's used to a 30-minute show or at most an hour show where the crisis comes and everybody gets it resolved and by the end of the show okay, it's done. Maybe a two-hour movie. But let, let me just express to you that, that one thing I'm learning is that, that the scripture, and especially a sermon, is not a sitcom. <laughs> and you may go away and think, well, I don't know what I got out of today. Oh, I'm not sure what that is. Maybe you didn't, didn't get anything other than an invitation. An invitation to say, okay, let's, let's go to God and figure out what this means to live in the Spirit. to to draw from that life because where he is, you are, right? That where I am, that you may also be. As As you go out of here, he will also be there because he lives in you. And the point is we, we,
we need to cultivate in this journey this ability to receive the life of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit every moment of every day. And living out of that, that's how the branch bears fruit. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.